Hello, I'm Stephen Cole and welcome to the Answers Project podcast from CGTN Europe. Every week we try to find the answers or at least try and make sense of one of the trickiest questions facing us in an increasingly complicated world. And we have access to some of the best brains on the planet to see if they can help shed light on some of the most pressing, ethical, scientific, geopolitical and occasionally philosophical quandaries. And I'm joined by Mari Beveridge, who's going to help me unravel this week's question. Mari, what are we asking this week? Well, it's a complicated one this week, Stephen. The question we are asking is, can you measure intelligence? Now, that is a combination, I suppose, of a philosophical and a neurological question. I imagine quite controversial, too. Definitely. So the, the question of measuring intelligence has quite a dark underbelly too. And um, there are all sorts of issues with this question. You know, what is the purpose of the test? What's the aim of the person carrying it out? And, and, and what does intelligence mean in different cultures? And that, that's the problem, isn't it? Because it probably means different things in different cultures. And intelligence isn't a material thing. So you, you can't just um, pop it on a scale or measure it with a ruler. So uh, let's let's go back to basics and define our terms. What is intelligence? Well, there's a wonderful quote from the psychologist R.J. Sternberg, who says that there are almost as many definitions of intelligence as there are psychologists trying to define it. <laughs> I, I can imagine. What about the, the dictionary definition? So the dictionary definition is uh, the ability to learn, understand and make judgments or have opinions that are based on reason. So not just about knowing things, it's understanding how to apply that information. Exactly. There's a famous line. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit and wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. That's <laughs> one of my favourite lines that I found whilst doing the research for this podcast. Well, I only found out that tomato is a fruit about five years ago, to be honest. But um, anyway, <laughs> the, the episode today is about whether or not we can measure it, measure intelligence. And I, I suppose the best place to start is looking at why we would need to measure it in the first place. Uh, great question. Uh, here I want to go to my first guest, who is a military man. I'm Dr Mike Rennie. I'm a chartered psychologist uh, specialising in defence and security psychology. I'm the secretary of the Defence and Security Psychology section of the British Psychological Society, and I'm also a senior lecturer at the Royal Military Academy, Santos. My role is to look at finding ways of applying psychological theory and practice to improve operational effectiveness across a range of both military and civilian defence and security aspects. Well, as you know, my son is, is a major in the British Army, um, and I know he had to do quite a few tests when he went to Sandhurst uh, and has to uh, undergo testing to progress through the ranks. Uh, and I am always impressed by senior officers uh, in the Army, I have mm. to say, by their quiet, what I would call their quiet intelligence. But what kind of tests are used, because he's never told me, uh, within the military to test intelligence? Well, Mike Rennie was quite sort of... He, he couldn't go into the sort of specifics and the details of the kinds of questions they would ask because he said, you know, you need to give everyone a fair shot and the whole idea is that we're not going to give away that information. But he did give me a, a sort of quick history of how the military IQ tests work. Well, 
in the early days of intelligence testing, uh, there was quite a lot of work done by the military, uh, especially just before the Second World War. The Royal Navy, for example, used intelligence tests and some other what we now call aptitude tests to try and stream recruits into specific jobs like into engineering or gunnery or specialist roles. A lot of work was done by the Special Operations Executive, for example, the secret agents that would drop in behind enemy lines to develop ways of testing for selection purposes. So we see the use of the Raven's Matrix test. Now that's a test that uses the manipulation of patterns to measure intelligence. It's still used today and uh, was groundbreaking in its time. So Dr. Rennie says that these intelligence tests used in the Second World War aren't so popular now. He says the intelligence tests aren't necessarily even seen as very good predictors for achievement or ability these days, um, as they just come up with a raw number. So what the military tend to do now is they will use what we call aptitude tests. So there'll be a specific set of skills or uh, aptitudes or traits that we're looking for in order to select people to go into a particular path. And that makes perfect sense, of course, because there are so many paths in the military to take. So, but, Mari, it's, it's therefore perhaps not so much about an IQ level anymore. It's about a sort of general aptitude suited to a specific role. Exactly. And, and the reason I wanted to start with this example of the military from Dr. Mike Rennie is that it's quite a nice summary of the way that attitudes to intelligence have changed over the years. And IQ tests actually started with a, a Frenchman called Alfred Binet, who was asked by his government to develop a test that could determine whether or not students needed additional help. And this was around the time that the French government had mandated that all children need to go to school. So they were saying, you know, who needs more help? Who isn't worth putting into school? Um, so he called these tests... Uh, the intelligence quotients. Hence IQ. I, yeah. I, see, even I could work that out. Uh, <laughs> in short, I suppose it's supposed to be a measure of a person's reasoning ability as well. In other words, an IQ test is supposed to gauge how well someone can use the information and logic to answer questions or make predictions. So Binet's tests were the beginning of the test we use today, is that right? Yeah, although eventually Binet sort of realised that these IQ tests were inadequate measures for intelligence because they couldn't really measure creativity or emotional intelligence. It was just sort of mathematics and sort of spatial awareness and things like that. So we're getting complicated now for me because you talked about intelligence, now you're talking about emotional intelligence, mathematical and creative. Are, are there many other types of intelligence? Yeah, there are a few, and it's really evolved over the years with the different psychologists that have applied their theories. But I think generally what is recognised now are the sort of the multiple intelligences that Howard Gardner is an American psychologist identified in his book from 1983. And, and the eight main intelligences that he identified and that we recognise today are mathematical, linguistic, naturalist, interpersonal, intrapersonal, spatial, kinesthetic ability and musical. I'm just trying to work out which one of those I might pass. You might have a few. You might have a few of those. <laughs> well, that's very kind. <laughs> you might very have generous. none. <laughs> very, very generous of you. Um, interpersonal. So that must be how well you communicate with others. And intrapersonal uh, in, inside you or self-discipline, things like that. 
so interpersonal is another type of emotional intelligence. Intrapersonal is things like, yeah, your capacity to plan for the future. And um, here I want to go to Professor Michael Ruiz from the University of Florida. He's a philosopher of science who specializes in the philosophy of biology. And he says that our capacity for empathy is incredibly important to, to human evolution. Intelligence is much more of a package deal. It's not only being able to do the sums, but at some level being able to have a, a sensitivity towards other people so you can engage with them. Not necessarily agree with them, but that somehow you can communicate with people. So Michael Ruse then went on to sort of explain to me the difference between human intelligence and things like artificial intelligence too. Computers and other things show us that raw brain power is not the only thing for intelligence. Humans are social animals, and so, if you like, intelligence means being maxi-successful as a social animal. That requires brain power, but it also requires social abilities like empathy and those things. So, if we're going to measure intelligence, I'm all in favour of doing that, but don't just make it, how good are you at sums? Couldn't agree with him more. I'm awful at sums, but <laughs> that's why we're journalists, Stephen. <laughs> that's why I'm a journalist. Um, but um, I mean, it, it must be empathy. Must be the key one that separates us from animals. Um, and I imagine some types of intelligence are easier to measure than others. But more complicated, perhaps, is how you measure creativity. The truth is, Stephen, we, we actually don't have a standardised way of measuring creativity like we do for other subjects. That of course, doesn't mean that creativity isn't important. It's incredibly important. Here I want to bring in Scott Barry Kaufman. He's a, a cognitive scientist and the founder of the Centre for the Science of Human Potential. Creativity is, is different than intellectual capacities, intellectual competence. It involves going out there and, or just in your own head, having rich imagination and having a rich creative thinking or putting a new product or a new idea into the world that has never existed before. So that, I suspect, um, is the real driving force behind the world's most famous entrepreneurs. They must have a great deal of creative intelligence and also the capacity for lateral thinking rather than one single type of intelligence. Absolutely. Kaufman also argues for a, a broader definition of human intelligence. Um, he wants one which takes into account the whole person. And he says that our standard model of intelligence is systematically letting too many kids fall between the cracks in our education systems. And it means that we have a very limited notion of, of human potential. And so Kaufman actually came up with this theory a couple of years ago, theory about intelligence, that it's made up of four crucial C words. The four C's are capacity, competence, creativity, and commitment. I think that capacity and competence are different from each other in the sense that we can have lots of tests that measure someone's so-called potential, but they could actually be performing. Their, you know, their competence could be far outstripping their so-called capacity, and I think we need to be on the lookout for ways in which the competence or ways in which the tests um, of the so-called potential or capacity are not aligning with what we're actually seeing in front of us and um, what the person's actually doing. So I think it's important to make that distinction. And Scott Barry Kaufman actually has a really nice sort of 
personal story because as a child he was perceived as having special needs and really struggled in school because he had a, a central auditory processing disorder which meant that he found it hard to uh, process and, and hear things and his teachers took his slowness as an indication that he was stupid but it was just that he had this sort of processing disorder and he went on to get a PhD from Yale. And that's the penalty for trying to judge people perhaps too young. There is a very famous national journalist in Britain who failed his A-levels and he sent a message on social media a few weeks ago to kids who, who were failing their A-levels saying, don't worry, I failed all my A-levels, now I drive a Bentley and I got a thousand-acre farm. It reminds me of the famous quote, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it'll live its whole life believing it's stupid. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, I love that quote. It's often wrongly attributed to Einstein. I'm not actually sure it, where it comes from, but it, it's great. And I think it, it really applies to this sort of question and this debate. And, um, you know, that's one of the main issues is standardised testing. But the other issue, major issue with this question, is much darker, and it's, it's the nasty problem of eugenics. And eugenics being that very controversial practice of reducing human suffering by breeding out, in quotes, disease or disabilities or what some people perceive as undesirable characteristics from the population. Exactly, and as you say, hugely controversial and, and often quite nasty. Earlier I mentioned Alfred Binet, the Frenchman who founded the IQ test, and he had invented this test to help kids and help them move through the education system. But what happened next was in the early 20th century, these tests crossed the Atlantic and were adopted by American psychologists. One of them was Lewis Terman, and he decided intelligence was innate, that you couldn't change it, and that different ethnic groups had different IQs. If he says intelligence was innate, but then where does learning come into intelligence? And because I can see how eugenics plays into this, breeding out low IQ scores. Yes, uh, exactly, and, and we'll get on to the nature versus nurture side of things slightly later on, but just sticking with the eugenic side of things at the moment, with IQ tests, they, they started doing these with immigrants in 1915, and Ashkenazi Jews, for example, scored very low in these tests and were discouraged from entering the States. But despite Terman's problematic approach to intelligence, he did actually come up with the final version of the formula that we use for IQ tests today, which is your IQ is your mental age divided by your chronological age times 100. Okay, I'm starting to sort of get a pen and paper here and trying to work, <laughs> work this out. It's really straightforward. It's, it's just... <laughs> Not your... if you're bad as sums as I am. Um, <laughs> but, so let me just check what you're saying. So you have a higher IQ if your mental age is higher than your actual age. So that I can imagine working very well for kids. There is, after all, a huge difference between a four-year-old and a five-year-old, but not much, I wouldn't have thought, between a 32-year-old and a 33-year-old. By that age, there aren't really any measurable developmental steps, really, are there? No, you're absolutely right. And what we're saying about mental age versus your chronological age is a four-year-old might set an IQ test and they have the mental age of a, an eight-year-old. And so it's that mental age of eight divided by four times 100, and that's how you get the IQ test. It is really, really quite straightforward. But, you know, as you're saying, as you get much older, there aren't that many big sort of markers between a 32-year-old and a 33-year-old, as you say. Here, I want to go to someone who showed huge signs of development at a very young age. Our next guest is one of Mensa's gifted children. Hello, my name is Shona and I, I'm 10 years old. My favourite subjects are math, science and Spanish. I think I do quite well because in Spanish, 
I'm always the first to finish the tasks. And in science, now we're learning about space, it's quite easy. And I know a lot about space. And in maths, all we're doing is a revision on measurements, so like centimeters and meters. And now and we're doing a volume of 3D shapes, which is easy if if you know what the measurements are referring to. Now, Shauna might know what the measurements are referring to. I personally am very, very bad at maths. You mentioned you're very bad at maths. Um, but, but I asked his, his dad how they identified so early on that their son might be gifted and what were the early signs of it. So my eldest son, so he started reading quite early in his childhood. So it was probably around 15, 18 months that he started reading. Uh, so that was one of the first signs. So there were many other incidents as well. So for example, uh, he had his favorite park to go to. So uh, wherever we went around the town, he was always kind of trying to give us directions to go to the park. Uh, so initially, uh, I mean, it was noticed by his grandmother, but we thought that was a grandparental view of the child. But as it turned out, when we followed his instructions, we could get to the park. Yeah, it was uh, many such incidents that had us thinking that he was potentially on the brighter side. I have to say, I was never tipped as a Mensa candidate when I was that age, uh, to be honest. But I, I, I love that. And I imagine many grandparents um, want to believe their grandchildren are gifted too. You've got grandchildren. You've got uh, yeah. two-year-old granddaughters. Do you think... Are they reading yet? Do you think they could be uh, on the line to, to Mensa? I think it's far too early, but they are intuitive and they are reading already. Sort of, they can understand books, obviously pictures, and I'm telling them words. But I have an 11-year-old grandson too, and... He is very, very clever and obviously takes after his grandfather. <laughs> no, no comment. <laughs> uh, but my question is, how do we know whether children are born with it? Is it the big question, Mari, nature or nurture? Well, I mean, I think it's determined by what, what happens in the early years of your life. And, and I think if you come from a community where you're encouraged to read and debate things and ask lots of questions and get lots of answers, on average, it's likely that you'll have a higher IQ. But this was sort of one of the concerns and one of the things that I spoke to about with um, Shwanak's father, Sivaraman. One of my questions were, how are they not biased towards children who are in families potentially like mine with ability to afford to buy the children tablets and for them to explore the internet on on their own with uh, certain parental controls so i have been told that the iq test do have a bit of a cultural bias but i also on the other hand uh, i think the younger the children are tested, for example, at three years, four years or five years old and stuff, that exposure is not that high. So uh, it's probably fairly more even. How do gifted children cope in schools, especially if they have a bad set of teachers? 
or they're in the wrong streams. Or It's very difficult, I'm sure, for schools to recognise sometimes gifted children. Do they breeze through? Or are they frustrated? And I imagine that's a pretty good reason for us to continue to try and measure or test intelligence, because we need to know which children need the most stimulation. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that's how this all sort of comes into can we measure intelligence is, is should we? And I actually spoke to a gifted child specialist. She's the author of the book High IQ, Gift or Challenge. My name's Lynn Kendall and I'm an educationalist and psychologist. I work lecturing in schools, training teachers and with individual clients. Up until three or four years ago, I worked in the education system. So Lynn works very closely with Mensa as a consultant. She actually works with Shawnak, the child that we heard from earlier. So she works with these gifted children, but she also works with children who have learning disabilities. Both ends of the ability spectrum are different in terms of the way that you work with them, but they have similar needs. They don't fit on the production line that is education, so they need additional provision other than what is offered on the production line that is mainstream education. And boy, do we need people like Lynn Kendall in our schools. Absolutely. Uh, but, but coming back to our exam question of can you measure intelligence, it appears that organisations like Mensa say absolutely you can. They're saying you can, but, but also they're saying you should, so that children can be given the right kind of support. Uh, and this was the original aim of Binet's test that he developed for the French government, identifying which children needed help. But politically, that's, that's in debate, isn't it, about whether you should stream gifted children, uh, whether you should separate gifted children from perhaps not so gifted. If I were to sit a test for a gifted child, what sort of questions would they ask me? I really admire your enthusiasm there, Stephen, that you think there is uh, still hope for you to be entered into the... There's always hope. Mensa. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but to answer your question, though, I'm going to go to Lynn Kendall again. Although there are some, and they tend to be the old tests, that will put a bit of maths or a bit of problem solving or words, these days they try and make IQ tests as culture fair as you can, so that people aren't put at a disadvantage because they've not been educated. So an IQ test will look more at the raw intelligence, the problem solving, finding patterns in things, can you see what comes next, what's the missing thing, what's wrong with this picture, all of those sorts of bits and pieces that you would need to be bright in order to notice. They might say, what does, I don't know, banana mean? And the answer to that will differ depending on whether you're talking to a two-year-old or a 20-year-old, and it's the amount of information that's given that gets the marks on that. So that's, I think, quite a good argument for these IQ tests. But as I mentioned earlier, intelligence and test scores have quite a dark history. And it's important not to forget how they've been exploited, because I think we've had quite a lot of the sort of positive side of these IQ tests. But it w would not be a proper episode of this podcast if I didn't dig up something depressing from the past. So I did want to mention that intelligence tests were used by Nazi Germany to enforce the sterilization of hundreds of thousands of people in the late 1930s based on their versions of, of IQ test questions. Their versions, I suppose, of the tests were different. 
Yeah, so the questions were based around social norms and they were, they were calling these IQ tests, but of course they had all of their own questions around social norms rather than cognitive ability tests. Questions like, who was Bismarck or what's the significance of Christmas, you know? So what we learned from that is history in the Holocaust has taught us that in the wrong hands, even something as seemingly innocent as an IQ test can be used for darker purposes. Absolutely, and it all comes back to the big question from the beginning of, of our chat, which is that it really matters who's doing these tests and why they're doing them and how the answers are interpreted and weighted. And then disseminated, I suppose. But maybe the question isn't can we measure intelligence, it's should we? Indeed. And for now, I think it's best to think about intelligence as a concept rather than a, a real thing. And it's um, something we've still got quite a lot to learn about, I think. That is oh, so fascinating, Mario. We could go on for a lot longer. But thank you very much. I'm hoping, oh, we're hoping, you, our audience, will get in touch to tell us what you think. Have you done an IQ test? Do you think intelligence can be measured? Do you think you're brighter than your test revealed? Perhaps <laughs> you think yourself a Mensa candidate. Let us know. And if you have a question you would like answered, we'd love to get the bottom of it on the next episode of The Answers Project. You can find us on CGTN Europe's Facebook or Twitter pages. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or Spotify. But thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>